every time I give a brain computer interface talk, especially to kind of young people, I always ask a question and I see how many people will raise their hands. And the question is this, okay, if, if I could offer you a completely, you know, cosmetic procedure where basically, you know, it's a one centimeter incision with what I could say is less risk than LASIK or less risk than, you know, the, the most, you know, benign cosmetic uh, surgical procedure. And I could put a small implant in, into you and I could uh, augment your cognitive function. I could improve your attention. I could improve your memory by, let's say, 20%. So you would perform better at work in less time. Would you do it? This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. For a guy that teachers thought was a slow learner, Eric Luther has done pretty well for himself. An accomplished neurosurgeon, inventor, playwright, book author, and even clothing designer, Eric has built a career with and around brains in a way no one would have imagined in his early life. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sudin, and we're grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. So, David, how are yes, you doing? Yes, Lisa. Um, so, we've seen a lot of uh, chatter around the uh, sphere lately around the interwebs. health data, the interwebs, about companies having access to health data. But what if there was a company that could not only access your data, but your thoughts? What would you think of that? Whoa. <laughs> um, well, I'm really looking forward to actually this conversation, obviously, to sort of get a sense of how close any of that is to being real. Yeah. There always seems sort of this discrepancy between what is sort of possible at a population level, this part of the brain does something, here's something else, versus the predictions you can make on an individual level. So, you know, even for basic fMRI stuff. So it'll be interesting. Um, um, uh, how this is able to be applied to individual people. For sure. Well, off we go into the inception land here. Eric <laughs> Luther is quite the Renaissance man. He's an accomplished <laughs> neurosurgeon and professor of neuroscience at Washington University in St. Louis, which I think is your dad's alma mater, David. It is. Um, uh, undergrad and um, uh, training, including in neuro. There you go. But he's also the inventor of a myriad of healthcare products and has over 17 issued and pending patents, including for a variety of brain-computer interface technologies that enable people to control machines with their thoughts alone. Whoa. He has written two nonfiction thrillers about mind and machine, available on Amazon. And Eric not only wrote and acted in a play, but won an Emmy for it and is working on the next one for PBS. He even has a clothing line that features his neuro-related designs, and he is a dad of two. I thought I was busy, but I got nothing on Eric, let me tell you. And is hardly ever sick at sea. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, welcome to Tectonics. Thanks for making the time, considering you could be out there collecting a Pulitzer or something, you know? Oh, thank you. Great to be here. Well, um, you told me that you started as a horrible student and rather aimless and uninspired, <laughs> and that your teachers thought you were a little slow. Because you've overcome that problem. So what put you on the straight and narrow? That is true. <laughs> you know, it's actually, I mean, it's pretty funny. I mean, like, again. I, you know, I grew up, I, I guess I, I like to say that I survived uh, kind of my Catholic grade school education. And it was, uh, oh, it was, a, it was a, a, a quite, it was quite an experience. I mean, the, the, the best kind of story that encapsulates that, uh, that experience was, I remember one of my teachers at, you know, was asking the class, you know, uh, what, you know, class, what is a ghost? And I said, I raised my hand. I said, it's a spectral incursion. And, uh, and I said, and my, my teacher said, you know, stop talking such nonsense. That's a demerit. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But you had a pretty significant turn of, I think, inspiration when you met Keith Crutcher, right? So can you tell us a little bit about that? 
No, that's right. I think that, uh, um, so I was in high school and, you know, I was uh, kind of muddling along and, uh, and I was getting, you know, actually less than muddling along. I was, I kept on getting a lot of detentions, uh, in, 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 uh, it's called a jug, a J U G meaning that, uh, and that stands for justice under God, uh, when you're at the uh, Catholic all boys school where they basically keep you in it. And so I, I kept on getting frequent, frequent jugs and, uh, <laughs> And I, you know, to the point that like, you know, I was picking me up every day after school, so extra, you know, hour or two late because I kept getting all these jugs. And anyway, so she got sick of that, and uh, then she eventually put me into this uh, uh, neurosurgery laboratory. And the head of that laboratory was this uh, guy, uh, Keith Crutcher, and you know, he, 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 you know, he actually had this kind of biblical prophet appearance to him. You know, kind of, uh, kind of salt and pepper. Uh, dark hair, long, long beard, and um, was an unbelievably deep, deeply thoughtful man. Where uh, he, you know, he ran this neuroscience lab within the neurosurgery department. And uh, but beyond the science, he was a he was a, a very kind of you know, theologically oriented individual. I mean, he just really thought about the depth and meaning of things and why we do stuff. And and it, and in retrospect, it's pretty amazing that this busy scientist would you know kind of sit with me on afternoons just talk about stuff I and mean, ranging from kind of the interesting findings we have in the lab to you know, you know the, the the history of God to the philosophy of being and all these things and it was an endless you know interesting conversation that really ignited my um, I think uh, uh, kind of my my worldview on kind of you know the, the what's possible with the brain the mind and thinking about the bigger picture of things and it really it really shaped me for a really serious day. So you you said, you know, you started to sort of dig into the lab. You spent a lot of your time there. Did your friends think you'd gone off the deep end, or, or was this a crowd uh, that appreciated your descent into the nerd factor? Yeah, well, I think a little bit of both. <laughs> I mean, I certainly had, uh, you know, my my high school, was it was a good high school in the sense that it was cool to be smart. And, uh, and it, certainly people were thinking, hmm, that's interesting. Like, why on earth is Eric, like, you know, leaving the party to kind of do a lab experiment at 2 a.m.? Um, but uh, but they they were okay with it. Like uh, I definitely had some some uh, full spectrum nerds in my in my um, in my, my my cadre of friends, so that wasn't it wasn't too out of bounds. So when you're you know with your current perspective and all your sort of uh, experience in neuroscience, do you look back at your time in high school and sort of have a sense of what your learning issues were? That's a really it's a really good question. I mean, I think so much of learning um, when in your early years, and actually not, not early years, you know, throughout your life, it's dopaminergic. It has to be pleasurable. And, uh, and I think when I think about my kind of very regimented Catholic grade school environment where basically everything was intended for, you know, compliance and following the rules, that it wasn't pleasurable. And, and also, so I think that's one. And I think also there's, a, I think, a real neuroscience about expect, kind of the perception of others and the theory of mind. And kind of the idea here is that uh, people's impression of a given person helps actually shape kind of their neurodevelopment. So if people don't think you're that smart, then you actually behave like you're not that smart. Whereas if people think you are smart, you, you actually rise to that. And, and I think uh, this, this critical element uh, is an example of that. So there was actually a, an experiment done where basically a, a bunch of kids uh, who were borderline or considered slow learners in a classroom uh, were basically told by their teachers that they were actually gifted. And when the teacher kind of treated them as gifted uh, students, 
they actually performed much higher above than the, the given expectations they had tested at in the past. And I think that there's something very dynamic about kind of relationships and how that shapes uh, neurodevelopment. And, um, and so I think the two things is that one, making, you know, kind of learning miserable uh, doesn't actually, you know, create, you know, the right neuro patterns that engage people to learn more. And two, um, the, the criticality of mentorships and positive relationships is really essential for kind of shaping kind of, you know, early identity and, uh, and uh, kind of in, initiation of further learning. So let me ask you, though, an interesting question that you just, you know, neuro-ish thing, a scientist-ish thing that you sort of raised. You know, you're saying how if kids who are, you know, have some condition of being told that they're smarter than, the per, you know, than they might have expected they would be, they kind of rise to the occasion. How does that mesh with sort of the idea of, you know, participation awards? The other critique you hear all the time now is, oh, we're sort of over-praising kids. Kids, it, it's, again, like a little thing they do. They get a participation award. They get a bell. They get a whistle. Whereas if, um, and people say we should be harsher. On the other hand, there's this other view that actually if you, if you give, you know, what some of my view is excessive praise, the kids sort of grow into that. How, how, does, does the science speak to that? What should we do? You know, it's a good question. I mean, uh, there's a scientist called, uh, her, name, her last name is Duckworth, who talks a lot about grit and resilience and kind of the neuroscience of kind of, you know, kind of rising to the occasion. I think there's a difference between expectation and praise and reward. Um, so expectation is that you kind of, you know, in, the way you interact with a given individual is the expectation that, or the uh, kind of assumption that they are a high-functioning or high-performing individual, and you treat them accordingly. Praise, uh, where basically you're just giving them, you know, rewards for every little incremental thing to the point that they actually are not performing, or you know, then you're actually uh, reducing, kind of reducing their level of potential performance. So I think I, I think there is a difference between expectation and uh, 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 praise, and I think. And um, and, uh, and and I think uh, the scientist Duckworth talks a lot about how how do we get people to move beyond the praise because the praise should be coming from inside, meaning that uh, the reason you're doing things are not externally driven but internally driven, meaning that you you, tr- you you generate your own dopamine when you set your own goals when you do your own things, and when you you move towards the thing that you want to move for, which is high performance. Um, and that's, you know, that's what we've got to, you know, train kids to do. And again, I, may, I think that, you know, the, the distinction between, you know, kind of praise and not praise and harsh and not harsh, those are probably, you know, to some degree, are, you know, too, uh, too binary, too black and white. I mean, I think the key, you know, in, in my opinion, I've got two kids, is I think early on, I think you really need to build a, a very positive emotional infrastructure for, for children and, and young adults and millennials. And, you know, that uh, basically you, they have a very solid emotional sense of self because then from that, then they can set their own goals and they can reward them, themselves uh, for, for uh, doing well in the world versus being reliant on external kind of validation. That's such an interesting topic. And, and, you know, I think I, it, I think becomes even more interesting as you think about what you've been doing in your career along the lines on the brain computer interface stuff, which I think you said early on you thought was going to be the future of humanity. So I'm curious why you came to that conclusion when you did early on in your life and what do you mean exactly by 
brain-computer interface anyway? You know, what sure. are the examples, uh, the real-life examples that we have around today? Yeah, sure. So, um, so first off, what is a brain-computer interface? It's some type of device that's interacting with our nervous system that's taking information out, uh, meaning reflecting our intentions in some way, um, or putting information in, creating uh, uh, perceptions or artificial perceptions. Um, and so a brain-computer interface, some of the, you know, the, the early kind of classic understandings are uh, quite literally, you put electrodes on the brain, you can record signals from the brain, somebody can use their brain signals uh, to control a machine, like a computer or a robotic arm or some type of uh, device that basically, if you've got a spinal cord injury or a motor deficit, enhances your ability to communicate and control the world around you. That's the simplest version of that. But I think this idea of exchange of information between our nervous system, uh, you know, I think creating that technology and creating that capability in its fullest form, um, uh, really, I think, has the potential to alter the course of human evolution. Uh, and what I mean by that is that um, kind of really what you know kind of defines us and defines our lives is, is the information in our brains. Um, it defines our personality. It defines how we handle information. And um, it is our brain is an information management system. And if you can fully decode the brain, just as we think about decoding the, the human genome, that the potential to seamlessly kind of put information in and out, not only kind of, you know, in many ways frees us from our bodies, uh, again, just to, you know, give you some, you know, theoretical scenarios, is that, you know, you know, could you, you could basically go on, a, you know, theoretically, if you can have an in, input brain-computer interface, you can basically go on a vacation to the Bahamas and never leave your living room and truly experience it as if you were really there. Um, you can, you know, you know, kind of treat the world, if you will, as your iPad. But it, it, the, the next level of thinking about that is that potentially, you know, and again, it sounds, you know, kind of like science fiction, and, and there are portions of it that it currently is science fiction, but the underpinnings for it are happening today, is that, you know, if you can have all that information, if you can access all that information, there's no reason to think you can't create it artificially. And um, and if you can model, you know, artificial intelligence off off of neural information processing, then you know people talk about things, and, and there's already companies that are actually trying to do this. I think it's been called Twenty uh, Project Twenty Forty Nine or something like that, where basically people are promising to download your brain by Twenty Forty Nine so that you can basically be immortal. I mean, this is the stuff of science fiction, and wasn't this was a coma or brain or something? I mean, I, I mean this this exact avatar. <laughs> well, no, but this exact thing about immortality, where you just sort of reduced to your brain. I mean, I think that was it. I feel like it was in some Michael Frankenstein. Book I, read. I think it might have been a Young Frankenstein. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, he, and, and I, here's the best analogy for how I think about technology and progression of technology. Uh, you know, and I love the, you know, going to give this example and talk is like, I love the show, a, a video of Pong that was playing, you know, that was, you know, first came out in 1973. People quite literally lined up for blocks outside of uh, this bar called Andy Caps to play Pong. And, you know, 30 years later, you know, you, you know, basically you have Xbox 360, which is simply, if you were to show those people back in 1973 who were lining up outside to play Andy Caps, they'd say, that is absolute science fiction, you know. And also, if you think of it another way, the computational power that it took to to, to do Xbox 360, in back in 1973, that same level of computation cost literally $9 billion and was a computer half the size of a football field. And so we're on a, we're on a fast pace of technical change, and we're having all these Pong moments today when it comes to brain-computer interfaces. People have shown you can do kind of information transfer from one brain to another in mice. 
people have created artificial memories in mice using optogenetics. And so these are, and so again, if you fast forward at 30 years, um, these things that seem com almost completely outlandish are a lot less outlandish. Um, and so I think you're, we're going to see, and you know, my goal, you know, again, hopefully, uh, you know, with one of the companies that I'm working on, Neurolutions, you're going to see the first clinically relevant brain-computer interface in the next year or two. What does Neurolutions do? Yeah, what does it do? What does it, what does it look, what does this uh, implementation look like? Yeah, so it's a, it's a non-invasive headset. Uh, basically, kind of, so uh, let me take a step back. So it, basically, the company, what they're doing is they are creating a brain-computer interface for a, a functional restoration of people with stroke who've got a paralyzed hand. And so one of the things that we kind of, you know, really learned over the last 10, 15 years was that even though a paralyzed patient can't, can't move their hand or their arm, they can imagine moving it, and they can try to move it. They can plan to move it, but they just can't actually do it. As it turns out that there's signals in the unaffected side of the brain, the ipsilateral motor areas, that are still present associated with the planning of that movement. And so we and it's got a very specific physiology, which we discovered. And so we created a non-invasive headset that can detect those signals. And then basically, it, uh, it wirelessly communicates to this robotic exoskeleton that the paralyzed patient wears on their hand. And when they think about moving their paralyzed hand, the robotic exoskeleton moves their hand for them. And actually, as it turns out, when they use it over three months, and we just recently published it and it was featured on the cover of Stroke, is that it, it induces rewiring in the brain so that basically after they use it for three months, they actually recover significant clinical function. And, uh, and they don't need the, the, uh, the, the device anymore. And these are based on impulses that you're able to pick up um, non-invasively with enough precision to make this work? Yes. Yeah, yeah. We've, we've proven that out and published on that. So beyond motor function, uh, where I'll take a lot of this work has been done, are you, is it in your mind that we'll be able to, you know, cure Alzheimer's or change the trajectory of Alzheimer's, of mental health disorders yeah. and the like with this, this functionality? Yeah, no, and again, like these, these technologies are already in play. So um, there's a guy named Theodore Berger at USC who's basically making what's called a hippocampal chip, basically, you know, kind of a replacement for a hippocampus that's been degenerated by Alzheimer's. And so I think people are making, uh, quote-unquote, replacement parts for the brain with uh, neuromorphic chips and chips that can integrate with the, the nervous system. Again, we're at the early phase of that, but people are even talking about doing, starting to begin clinical trials for these uh, hippocampal chips with people with Alzheimer's. So, and they've also already used them in mice where they've taken out the hippocampus and showed that they could recover function in mice. So these, um, these technologies are here today, and many of them, and uh, but basically they haven't been scaled to, the, to their full potential and capability in humans. But again, you know, at the, at the pace at which you know kind of you know, technology changes uh, in 30 years, it's not inconceivable that we'll see these much more prolifically. Do you see a continuum between work that's designed to, um, re you know, bring people back up to normal to replace deficits, and then work that might take it to the next step and try to make people, give them enhanced abilities? Absolutely. How do you see that continuum? I mean, I think that that is a, uh, that is an absolutely, there's many historical uh, precedents for restoration to augmentation. I mean, again, the most crass example of that is in plastic surgery, uh, meaning that, you know, a lot of plastic surgery was uh, originally intended for uh, 
uh, restoring women after mastectomies or, you know, people who had, you know, facial injuries. Those same, t- same type of techniques and technologies then got used, you know, for uh, quite literally augmentation or, you know, alteration for, to improve people. And I think there's something interesting in the sense that uh, uh, culture about how we change ourselves and our bodies these days is also changing. I think, you know, if you look back 30 years ago, uh, um, the, the idea of a tattoo or even kind of plastic surgery was somewhat taboo, uh, depending on where you were in the, you know, regionally. Now it's much more commonplace. You know, I think depending on the statistics that you look at, 20 to perhaps even 40 percent of the population have tattoos. Uh, and so this idea that changing yourself is more the norm is really kind of kind of becoming more of a, a force. And so I think this idea of cha- not only changing your body, because again, we have, nobody has problems with wearing glasses or you know kind of hip you know hip prosthetics or you know artificial knees and all that stuff, just stuff that you do. Um, but I think this idea of you know, augmenting yourself to improve performance, it'll absolutely happen. Because I love to give a uh, every time I give a brain computer interface talk especially the kind of young people, I always ask a question and I see how many people will raise their hands. And the question is this, okay, if, if I could offer you a completely, you know, cosmetic procedure where basically, you know, it's a one centimeter incision with what I could say is less risk than LASIK or less risk than, you know, the, the most, you know, benign cosmetic uh, surgical procedure. And I could put a small implant in, into you and I could uh, augment your cognitive function. I could improve your attention. I could improve your memory by, let's say, 20%. So you would perform better at work in less time. Would you do it? And especially when you talk to you know, high school students, undergrads, graduate students, they all raise their hands. You know, when you start to get, you know, you know, uh, you know kind of people who are a little bit older, you know, it's a little bit more mixed. But, um, but I think this idea that, like, if I could, you know, have a, a minor procedure performed on me and I could improve my, you know, kind of performance in this information age, people will do it. So, Eric, you spend a lot of your time inventing things. I mean, you're a physician and a surgeon, but you also are an inventor and entrepreneur, all those, all those patents and all those products. What is the one you're most proud of and, and what are you most excited about that you've, you know, brought to the marketplace? So, I mean, certainly, you know, brain-computer interfaces are my life's blood, and, and, and uh, creating this technology called the Ipsy Hand, which we really, uh, I think we broke a lot of paradigms in, in doing it, and for me, it has been deeply, deeply satisfying. Um, you know, we really challenge the idea of, you know, how, you know, kind of motor systems are perceived control. We've challenged the notion that, uh, you know, functional recovery is not possible in chronic stroke. And, you know, again, just just on a very personal level, some of the patients that I've seen, you know, just restoring some of their dignity back. You know, I, I, there's one patient, uh, a patient of mine, uh, his name is Rick. And I remember the first thing, this was early in the trial, he flagged me down. He said, Dr. Luthart, I just want to show that, you know, I, I now can put my pants on again. You know, and that type of stuff, you know, really has been moving to me uh, in terms of restoration of function. But also, um, and, and that's, you know, we're about, you know, uh, I guess I have to be somewhat circumspect you know, to respect the, the company, but we're very, very near term for getting that uh, FDA approved. And so um, so I think you're going to see that on the horizon quickly. So that I feel a great deal of pride on. Um, but I think this idea of general you know, notion of you know, how do we modify the nervous system for you know, dramatic effect, 
Um, you know, I, I certainly I created some of the core intellectual property behind pair therapeutics. Yeah, I wanted to get into that. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because you know, I was telling Lisa I, when I came out of J.P. Morgan this year, um, the two companies that uh, that I've heard people talking about a lot in the digital health space in a positive way <laughs> were uh, GoodRx um, and Pair Therapeutics. So, what was the deal? What's the deal with Pair, and what? How did you? Um, how did you help initiate that? As I understand it. Well, I mean, I guess I, I, you know, I created all the intellectual property that <laughs> that the company was founded on. That sounds relevant. So, uh, so again, this is back in, gosh, this is 10 years ago, but base, uh, you know, I was involved as a, uh, kind of a consultant inventor for uh, this group called Intellectual Ventures, and we regularly invented stuff. And they had patented it and kind of, you know, catalog it. And, and one of the fundamental things that I thought about back then was um, that that's, Again, there's a there's an old school example which you know really resonated with me back then is that you know if you show um, a burn victim uh, images of icy fields, that they feel less pain, and that you know kind of was a, a sentinel moment for me because I remember thinking, well, wait a minute, if we can use kind of if we can so often we think about modulating the nervous system with electrodes and electricity or drugs, but you know we we have a we have a built-in neuromodulation system. It's called our senses, our eyes and our ears. And depending on the stimulus that you put in, that you can affect the nervous system in, in meaningful ways to treat a, treat a disease. And more specifically, if, you're, if, you, if you give that you know, very tailored you know, sensory stimuli with drugs intended to change the system, you can have a potentially synergistic effect. And, uh, and that was kind of my insight back then, 10 years ago, which led to a number of, I think, you know, 20 or 30 patents. I see. So is this intellectual, is this the Nathan Mervold uh, intellectual ventures thing or something totally different? That's right. Right. So they were trying to collect all this IP and then I see then the idea that they sort of had a catalog of IP. And then if a company wanted to do something, they had to license it from this firm, right? That's right. That's right. And so... Uh, and so, you know, I worked a lot on that IP portfolio, and then I, actually, I, I got to know um, Corey McCann, and then I brought Corey to meet the uh, business development people at Intellectual Ventures. This Corey McCann, the CEO of Paratherapeutics, was a, uh, formerly a graduate uh, of uh, Washington University, which is where I'm from. That's very cool, and that's the first FDA-approved digital therapeutic, so very interesting that's right. development there. That's right. So, Eric, I know you run around, the, you know, the world and also St. Louis talking about um, – brain and brain um, machine interaction and all of the rest. And you actually turned some of this talk into a play called Brainworks, Your Mind on Life. How did that come about? And and and, and you won an Emmy for it, so that's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about that and, and, and what you're doing to bring this whole discussion to the common man. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll tell in the context of, you know, uh, just I've always, you know, I think it's important not just to do the science, like, I've really wanted to bring neurotech to the forefront of kind of, you know, of really kind of making it, it a force in, in the society. And, and you know, certainly I've done that with my science. I've tried to do it with my company, Neurolutions, to really create, you know, you know financially self-sustaining you know, systems that create more neurotech. But also I think it's very important to really, you know, connect emotionally uh, to kind of the broader audience through entertainment and media to really get them thinking about neuroscience and technology. That was the nightest for kind of why I wrote my two fiction novels, you know, Red Devil 4 and Limbo, and also, you know, Brainworks. And the, the, the personal story behind uh, Brainworks was, uh, 
So every year, you know, kind of the faculty neurosurgeons, we all get tasked with giving some dry kind of lecture to kind of the, the, the St. Louis audience. And, uh, you know, we all kind of, you know, you know, you kind of have to do it. And, you know, so you go up, you bring a PowerPoint, you talk about surgeries or something boring, and you know, maybe 50 people show up. And it, it never felt, you know, like I was really doing much. And so then one year, uh, kind of one of my good friends, and you know, his name is Albert Kim, he's also a neurosurgeon. We just, we really love to geek out on neuro anything. Like, you know, people just sit around us and we just end up getting, going into our own universe talking about neuro. And, um, and you know, and it, it, we really have fun. And so, you know, at some point I was like, well, you know, how we keep, keep having to do these talks. Why don't we do it together? We'll do a TED Talk style version of it. And like just have it be us talking about random neuro stuff uh, instead of just the, the boring lecture. We did that. And it was a great local success. And, and it generated a ton of new, you know, referrals to the hospital. And, and they were really, you know, the hospital was really excited about it. And we really actually didn't do that much. And then, and we met with the, um, and one of the people who was in the, that audience was the chief uh, marketing officer for Express Scripts. He's like, guys, that was great. We got to, you know, turn, put steroids on that and, you know, make it happen. And so kind of out of that, that discussion, we said, well, you know, let's just do a play and like, let's do basically kind of really talk about the neuroscience of every, you know, of the random moments of life. So I think, you know, like, number one, I think people are interested in what goes on in themselves and this neuro, and this you know, neuro idea um, in, in the things that, you know, kind of affect all of us, meaning like, you know, what, what is the neuroscience of a first date? What is the neuroscience of, you know, going to, of a bachelor party? What is the neuroscience of uh, when you get sick? And what's the neuroscience of when somebody you love gets sick? And, um, and or the neuroscience of uh, running a marathon and, and, and grit and, and perseverance. And so we really kind of, and one of my patients was actually a great inspiration for this story. He was a, um, a triathlete and, and at the age of 30 had a really, really bad brain tumor. And uh, I operated on him. And uh, within a year, he was back running a marathon. And he was an amazing guy. And um, and so, you know, he really became kind of the, 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 the human kind of, you know, seed for this story. We wrote the story about him. And, and it was it was a really uh, a fantastic success, you know, both locally. You know, we, we sold out both nights, but also... Um, it did well, you know, it really generated a lot of important, you know, kind of media and recognition for the hospital and referrals and all that, you know, measurable stuff. Um, but, and then also, uh, KETC, our, our, uh, our local PBS affiliate is also kind of now partnered with us for the next round to do a much larger uh, play, but also film it for, you know, kind of hopefully national, uh, uh, televised series. Wow. So, so Eric, this sounds really amazing. You know, I, the idea of there being kind of this overlap or the idea of using popular media, popular approaches. I mean, I, I have some exposure to this. Um, in um, I went to med school with Neil Baer, who did a lot of stuff with ER and then with um, med, and in, in, in internal medicine with um, Sid Mukherjee, um, you know, who's now working on a different, you know, PBS stuff with, with Ken Burns on, 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 on cancer and, and, and peripheral maladies. Um, one of the, uh, I guess, questions I have for you is, you know, it's so easy to find examples of popular misunderstandings of science and of, is there a book that you look at that you say, wow, this book was prescient, this book or this movie or this TV show, whatever it is, that's fiction, um, and that was a dramatization, but kind of got it, you know, fun- fundamentally right. Is there an example that stands out like that for you? For me, I can tell you the books that I read that totally shaped my worldview. Yeah. Um, and it's yep. Isaac I knew Asimov. you were going there. Yeah. Um, 
you know, when you read Isaac Asimov, and he wrote this, you know, 50 years ago, he wrote about, uh, um, you know, kind of artificial intelligence, you know, kind of um, in his robot series, he, you know, when he, the foundation series where he writes about the quantification of human behavior. I mean, we are living that right now. And just when you look at Facebook and Google and how they can really, you know, predict individual behavior by their quantification of large-scale data. That is, you know, I think uh, uh, Isaac Asimov called that psychohistory. You know, he and, and his also prediction of nanotechnology. I mean, oh, I mean, I the, I remember fan, when fantastic. I mean, so here, Lisa, you'll appreciate this. I, I when I was home recently, I found some little clay project I made when I was like in first grade, and it was the Proteus <laughs> submarine from Fantastic Voyage. Wow. So it's a, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> Well, Eric, um, we're getting close to the end of time, unfortunately, but I wanted to ask you one particular question. You know, I know you've talked about that despite all this brain activity, you've talked about the importance of getting into a flow state, that, you know, the importance of getting rid of all the crap we're bombarded with day after day in the modern world and, and to reduce stress. Can you talk about that flow state and how you get there yourself? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, it is an interesting thing that uh, – we are so connected these days, like maintaining attention is, is really challenging. And, um, and so certainly, uh, you know, for me, the things that I do to get into flow, I love to write, you know, I love to do art, um, you know, and if I really need to, you know, I don't think I, we, we talked about this earlier, sometimes I actually use a brain stimulator. Um, uh, I don't know if you know transcranial direct stimulation, but anyway, I had, I had one of my engineers make one for me where you can just, <laughs> where you, Lisa has something that's can, similar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and there's a, there's a funny story here too. Like basically, uh, my my one of my good buddies, his name's Dan Moran. He's a professor of biomedical engineering. When one of his monkeys was really sick uh, and had to have you know a brain, the monkey had a brain implant, so I had to uh, I had to operate to take the brain implant out because it, it had an infection. So I I you know I did it like for free and didn't you know didn't ask for anything. For it. But, but the deal I made with him, I was like, well, then I want you to make me this, you know, brain stimulator, which is a transcranial direct stimulator. It, it basically, it's two electrodes that you put on the inner side of your head, depending on where you put it and the voltage that you use. You can send a small current through your brain that basically will amplify. <laughs> We're back to young your Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. It works though; it really does. But uh, as long as you believe that, and it works. <laughs> you know what, it does because when you turn it off, when when you, when you flip between the amplitudes, you'll start to see flashing lights. And, uh, you know, and that's real. Uh, so, um, <laughs> anyway. That might be the acid. I don't know. Uh, well, Eric, this is pretty pretty crazy. So, uh, besides the TMS, I, I, I guess you also uh, are trans – wait a minute. Transcranial streamline. TCS. There we go. Um, Maybe you need some. <laughs> yeah, obviously you could use some of that. Um, you are a father. Are your kids following in your scientific footsteps or are they no. – uh, they're Running pretty away. young, you know. My my daughter certainly loves. Uh, uh, um, she does like that. We do experiments, like we like we were doing a science project right now where we're doing different types of slimes. Uh, they both they're 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 their own people. Um, I think my daughter likes to do experiments and she likes to do a little bit of science. Uh, but and she likes math, so we'll see. I mean, but she's also quite creative. Like putting those voltage things on no, 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 no. <laughs> the electrodes stay away. No, but uh, they are they are my absolute pride and joy. I mean, they I. I Thoroughly enjoy, you know, kind of uh, uh, 
playing with them and hanging out and uh, we have so much fun together but uh, they they're 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 the reason i do all this stuff that's awesome well thank you so much eric it's just wonderful to talk to you today as always great well thank you for having me i really appreciate it awesome stuff thank you so much Today's guest, Eric Luther, was speaking to us today from St. Louis while we sit ensconced in Tectonic Studio B in Mill Valley, California. So, David, wondering if you're ready to get that mind-enhancing implant now, or is that redundant to going to Harvard and MIT? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I thought it was so interesting because I've, I've really been almost reflexively skeptical about so much of this stuff. Um, and, um, you know, I, it, the idea of being able to, un- to, you know, with a couple of electrodes, be able to sort of precisely in- interrogate the brain and then utilize it. Uh, you know, it, it's still hard for me to get my head around, but it, but it's interesting. It's interesting to to be pushed to think in that direction. Uh, you know, I, I, there's been so much work done in neurostimulation and other parts of the body that's been highly effective, right? In the heart, uh, in the spine, in uh, in depression, in other areas. I, I'm not surprised that we're we're nearing in on this. I think it'll be a long time before. The FDA lets people get uh, brain enhancement implants, or at least that are you know not black market. But I think one of the things we're also hearing is you know with so many entrepreneurs, you hear about you know everyone sees themselves at the very beginning of the adoption curve, you know, and everyone says, oh, it's going to be just like such and such was before they made it big. And you always wonder what the denominator of that looks like, you know, <laughs> like the number of, you know, like. You yeah. know, it's like it's sort of like, everyone, we're gonna be like cell phones. You know, that one that you know, like McKinsey said, oh, it's not going anywhere. It turns out to be huge, but maybe it's gonna be like flying cars, where everyone said it's not going anywhere, and now still no flying cars. You know. Yeah, but they also said electric cars wouldn't go anywhere. So you know, things do happen, right? There you go. I, well, is, and that's uh, you know, and I think, and trying to anticipate which is you know, which way it's gonna go and when. Um, but it, it's wonderful that people like him are working on this and are so passionate and have such an incredible broad array of interests. Well, it gives a whole new meaning to the term artificial intelligence. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, um, thank you to Eric. And now we'll turn to David, who's writing You Can Follow at Forbes. And you can follow Lisa soon at AdventureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to GE Ventures for sponsorship of today's episode. GE Ventures, multiple paths to big impact. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs>